0: Well, in the summer of 1997, I was stationed on a Coast Guard cutter, a 110-foot patrol boat, and our primary missions were search and rescue and law enforcement. Um, At the time, I was a gung-ho, 22-year-old, ready to take on the world. So I was really excited one night when at home we got this call to get our behinds to the ship immediately, uh, and I knew something big was going down. When I got there, we had a simple kind of briefing that uh, we had some intelligence that s- a known drug network was uh, running some some materials off of the San Juan Islands. And what they wanted us to do was to go over and do some uh, intelligence gathering, some uh, gathering of data, so we go darkened ship, which is always kind of fun, because we would drill for this, but then you actually get to do it, you, show, you shut all of the lights off, and you have these red lights inside the bridge, and that's it, all the portholes are shut, so you're kind of going stealth, right, and so we stealth up to this island, and we've got our night vision goggles, and we're watching all the stuff, and sure enough, the intelligence was right, we see these ATVs going down a steep, kind of muddy road, and then they, they're at the beach, and these little black inflatable boats are going up, and they're putting packages on and running away. And I'm watching and I'm watching and one after the other keep going. And finally I'm just like, when are we going to do something? And one of the senior guys in charge on the bridge said, we are doing something. We're building an airtight case to take down a criminal network, not just trying to take um, petty thieves out so or petty thugs out. So we didn't actually do anything except for gather intelligence. And I did find out later that this like pretty big ring was brought down Partly because of that. Whenever you have something go to trial, you need two things at least reliable evidence and credible witnesses. Right? And this evening we're going to enter into a section of Matthew's gospel that is full of trials. Tonight we're going to look at the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas. Next week, we're going to hear a story about Peter actually being on a sort of trial when he denies he knows Jesus three different times. We'll see Jesus on trial um, before Pilate, eventually before we um, have the crucifixion. And the interesting thing is, as we look at these different trial stories of Jesus, I think it's easy for us to look uh, from a vantage point of, wow, this is an interesting story. Look how Jesus is on trial with these different people. Look how Peter's on trial. But if we are honest with ourselves, as we look at these trial stories, what we have to come to grips with is that in each and every one of these trial episodes, you and I are on trial in a way of sorts as well. Tonight, in the story we're going to explore, I want to suggest that our passage is going to put our fears on trial. And so as we read this and and as I work through it with you, uh, I want to encourage you to ask maybe what are some of the fears that rise up inside of you and what might Jesus want to do with those things. I want to encourage you to stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 57-68. through Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome or to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. Lord Jesus, we confess that each, uh, each year around this time, we come back to these familiar texts, these familiar stories. We've got our theology worked out about your atonement and why this had to happen. And I pray, Lord, as we enter this text again, that you would soften our hearts, uh, that you would reopen our doctrines That you would help us to feel a little bit of what you went through to rescue us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open this word and speak to us as as you would. We want you to be God of this message and of our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. I open uh, this message with a little story about how one would build a case, the painstaking things it takes sometimes to build a case where you have uh, credible witnesses and things like that. And, And it's not always glamorous, and it takes time, and it takes letting little things go sometimes to build a bigger case. That's how it's supposed to be done at least. That's not exactly how it was done in this story in roughly 33 A.D., The priestly class had been watching Jesus with malicious intent for quite a while. They knew they didn't like what they saw in Jesus, but they didn't really have anything concrete to try Him with, to to accuse Him of. But one night, Judas, one of Jesus' twelve closest disciples, comes to them and says, I'm willing to give Him up. In fact, what would you give me to give you Jesus? Jesus. Judas knew when Jesus might be the most vulnerable, most easy to arrest. It was a chance I'm sure they felt like they had to take. And last week, we read about how Judas led the authorities right to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They arrested him in the middle of the night. That may have been seven days ago on our time, but in the story world, that's probably less than an hour, roughly around an hour, between the arrest and what's happening now in our passage. What's happening now is Jesus has been arrested and taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. To me, when you read this, a dark cloud kind of hovers over this whole scenario. The disciples have already abandoned Jesus at this point. We learn at least that Peter has followed Jesus, but at a distance. And the text says that Peter uh, follows back at a distance and stops short of going in with Jesus. He stops in the courtyard and he sits with the servants of the high priests. And it says that he is waiting to see the end. Sometimes in our English translation it says he's waiting to see the outcome or how the trial will end. In Greek it's literally telos. Peter stopped, sat with the servants of the high priest to see the end. I'm not convinced Peter has much hope for what's about to happen. Thinking back on the previous passage where Peter fails to pray in the garden, Dale Bruner reflects... If we will not pray with Jesus, we will sit with his enemies. But Peter's trial is next week. We'll save that for our sister Deb who's preaching on that sex next week. Uh, in this passage, we are dealing uh, in this passage that we're dealing with, a lot of issues arise, a lot of questions about how the so-called trial actually went down. The issue is complicated because the best documents we have that talk about how Jewish trials were, uh, were conducted is late. It comes from the Mishnah, which comes from about 170 years after Jesus was crucified. So we can't put too much stock in how those legal proceedings were supposed to happen but we're not without evidence. We do have evidence from historians like Josephus. We have evidence of how Roman trials were run, and they overlap a little bit. And we have the Old Testament, which tells us at least some basic ground rules for how these things were supposed to have happened. So here's a few of the ways that we are pretty sure this trial was not very good. Um, First of all, trials were not to be held at night. The gathering together of the Sanhedrin, which is 200 years, it was formed 200 years before Christ, so we know a lot about the Sanhedrin. It's supposed to be a gathering of 70 or 71 of the elders, the chief priests, this mixture of Jewish leaders, and they were supposed to conduct a trial only in the daylight. So already we have this thing at nighttime that causes us to think this thing isn't quite right. Furthermore, they're supposed to meet in this place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? The Chamber of Hewn Stone. That is not Caiaphas' backyard like in our story. So the fact that this is at night and at the house of Caiaphas causes some concern here that this wasn't exactly kosher. This isn't how the Sanhedrin was supposed to meet. So what is all this, Anyway. Most likely, what was happening was a mixture of some things. Some of these things were malicious, and some were just plain sloppy. They didn't have a strong case against Jesus. But when the opportunity rose that Judas gave them to arrest him, they took it. And in fact, in Matthew twenty-seven one, which comes a few, several verses later, we learn that in the morning, they actually did take Jesus from Caiaphas's house, probably to the place of the hewn stone, and he met before Sanhedrin where they convicted him to death. So we know that actually this trial did take place. So what is going on in our story? This informal, unprofessional, and as we shall see, illegal meeting of accusers at night. Probably what this was, was intended to be a kind of a grand jury hearing, or a a type of interrogation. Basically, they were trying to build a case and get enough credible witnesses to then take Jesus in the morning to the real court and say, here's our case uh, against him. Now, while we don't know everything about how Jewish trials were supposed to be run at this time, we do know one thing is for sure. False witnesses were not allowed. We know that not only from the book of Leviticus, but from the Ten Commandments themselves, right? Um... You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I don't know if you've considered this, but look how this whole passage is just dripping with irony. Here we have the high priest, the representative of God to God's people, the defender and teacher of God's word, and the practitioner of God's whole temple, and he is deliberately breaking God's law in in order to falsely accuse God's Son. If it weren't such a horrible story, it would almost be laughable that no false witnesses could be found whose stories matched up. The high priest knew that in the morning, even at the Sanhedrin, false evidence... Must, or evidence has to be corroborated between two independent witnesses. He couldn't even find that amongst liars but finally two witnesses with the same story come forward. They claimed that Jesus spoke of destroying the temple and then building it back in three days in John's gospel we learn that Jesus said destroy this temple and in three days I raise it up that's a whole lot different than I will destroy this temple but uh, faced with the these partially false ch- charges Jesus chooses to remain silent he doesn't you know he doesn't defend himself like here here is this fault this partial truth somebody said I heard Jesus say I will destroy the temple and build it up in three days you know Jesus could have said uh, that's not what I said actually I said If you tear it down, I'll build up in three days. Jesus remains silent. And I think partially he's working out of the Proverbs. He's living out a proverb. He realizes that this is not... uh, He's he's before fools, really. And to try and argue with fools and to try and state his case in this hostile environment, it's not going to do him any good. He's not going to have the time nor the receptivity to fully explain what needs to be explained. It's better not to try and explain yourself to someone who's already bent on disagreeing with you. And at this point, it's hard for me not to hear echoes of Isaiah 53.7, where God speaks of His servant who will suffer to redeem the world. It goes like this. He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent... So he did not open his mouth. Well, furious at Jesus' silence before these accusations, the high priest breaks another rule of engagement. You see, the high priest is supposed to act as a judge or an official, hearing the defense and hearing the prosecution. He's not supposed to directly interrogate uh, the defendant. But here, he not only asked Jesus a question. He locks Jesus into the triple-dog dare of all oaths in Judaism. He calls on the name of the living God and asks in a solemn oath whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus simply says, you've said it yourself. It's brilliant. I love it. Jesus is so smart. Don't forget that, by the way. It's a side thing. Don't forget how incredibly intelligent Jesus is, how incredibly with it he is, I don't know what, sometimes people think that he's just like this, uh, like flowers in the air, um, like God spell or something like that, and you know, he's just, he's just cruising around, everything's cool, everything is awesome, if you saw the Lego movie, Jesus is brilliant, and check out why, if Jesus were to say yes, his answer could be totally misinterpreted. The title Messiah and Son of God had so many shades of meaning in the first century. Depending on what teacher you were listening to or what, popular, what was popular in the doctrine at the time, it could mean a whole number of things. But for almost everyone it meant at least this, that they expected the Messiah to be a kingly military ruler who would go kick Rome off the throne and put Israel back in power. That is not the Messiah Jesus was. That's not the Messiah Jesus is. And that's not, that is exactly why he didn't say, yeah, that's who I am. He knew if he said, yes, I'm the Messiah, that they would connote that other meaning on him. Okay, so he's not their type of Messiah. But if Jesus would have said no, that wouldn't have been true either. Because Jesus was God's authorized anointed Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's just not the type of Messiah, Son of God that people had interpreted. So Jesus leaves the door open. And by leaving the door open, by saying these words, you've said it yourself, check out what he does. He leaves one more opportunity for Caiaphas to respond rightly. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? You said it yourself. You, yourself, have just said the words that I am Messiah, Son of God. The question is, what will you do with that? I think that is a valid, valid question for every generation. Every generation has got to figure that out for ourselves. And if you're here visiting and your mind isn't made up about who Jesus is, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? You've said it yourself. What do you do with that? Well, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He goes a whole lot further. Let's look at the passage again. You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, very soon you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Power is a circumspect way of saying God. Um, so you'll see the right, uh, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, or God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. When Jesus says this, then the high priest pairs his robes with a a sign of outward expression of anger and mourning and blasphemy and he screams he's blasphemed and the crowd say he deserves death what was it that Jesus said that got them to respond so passionately so strongly and with the death penalty well what he did was quote the prophet Daniel chapter 7 If you want to get real fancy, Psalm 110.1, but I'm going to focus on Daniel 7. It it was a very important and often quoted text amongst 1st century Jewish teachers. You see, in the 6th century BC, Israel was held captive in Babylon. And Daniel was a prophet in that day, and he had a vision of four beasts. And each of these four beasts represented an empire. First was Babylon, the second was Persia. The third was Greece, and the fourth, Rome. The beast representing Rome was arrogant and boastful. The first three beasts kind of looked like animals that you find in nature, things like leopards and lions, things like that. The fourth beast was terrifying because it was a monster. It had iron teeth. It was like nothing Daniel had ever seen before. It was arrogant above all the others. It was directly boastful and arrogant to God. It tormented God's people. Anyway, Daniel's vision continues, and in this vision, there's a court scene, a trial, just like what Jesus is in, right, in the story. There's this court scene, and there are thrones, and in one of the thrones is the Ancient of Days, is God himself. And he sets up this trial, and he judges the four beasts, and he destroys Rome, this arrogant beast, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. And then this one like a son of man, an individual who represents all the people of God, all the faithful believers of Israel, this one like a son of man comes up to the throne and takes a seat next to God. He rides up on a cloud, takes a seat next to God, and he's given power and dominion and a kingdom that will not end. Okay, now you're ready for this. The high priest is furious. Not only because Jesus is self-identifying with the Son of Man figure, but because if Jesus is the Son of Man, then the role of the beast in that story is not just Rome, but it is the corrupt priesthood who's holding him on trial right now, and it is Caiaphas himself. Think about that a moment. Think about this. If Jesus were just a guy suffering from an extreme delusion of grandeur, do you think that Caiaphas would have gone to all this trouble? I mean, i got to give Caiaphas some kind of credit. He's at least a priest of God. i, I got to think that he's trying to usually uphold the word of God to some way, shape, or form. He doesn't want to get up in the middle of the night and do all this stuff. If it's just some guy who's saying, I'm the son of God or the son of man, would Caiaphas really have gone to all this trouble to get false witnesses in there? If Jesus were just a misguided revolutionary, would Caiaphas have wanted to get involved in this? You know, frankly, Rome is really good at crushing revolutionaries on their own. It happened all the time. And I don't read any stories about Caiaphas or any of the priesthood getting involved in that. If Jesus were just a troublemaker, Caiaphas, I think, would have stayed so far away from that guy because he wouldn't want to, to be associated with him in any way, shape, or form. I think there's something so much deeper going on in the story. And it's not just the nighttime arrest and the false witnesses that gives it away. It's the absolute venom that spews out of Caiaphas, that spews out of the Sanhedrin that gives it away to me. How is it? That the high priest of God would condone his men, taking turns spitting on the face of this man and beating him and mocking him and blindfolding him and saying, Who hit you that time? Prophesy to us, you Christ. This is personal. This is not just a difference in doctrine or some man who's a little full of himself. I think that Caiaphas knew Jesus was someone special. And I think that Jesus, his way of life, his way of being threatened Caiaphas in his comfortable way of life. And that made Caiaphas very afraid. A few years ago I read a book called The Man-Eaters of Kumaon by Jim Corbett. Anyone know of Jim Corbett? Jim Corbett lived in the early 20th century, and he's a famous, he's actually more famous as being a naturalist, Um, he he loved nature, but... What gets written about the most is that he was also a uh, a man who hunted, he was one of the best hunters of man-eating big cats, particularly leopards and tigers. Leopards and tigers almost always, always, always avoid human beings. They want to stay as far away from us as possible, but every once in a while, one of these large cats will kill a human, and then once they have the taste of human blood, they don't go back. It's just... They just keep killing. Well, this tiger, this man-eater of Kumaon, killed over 400 people in these surrounding villages. So, India, the government called in Jim Corbett to track and kill this tiger. And what's fascinating is that these man-eating tigers all turned to human beings as a food source because of injuries or because of disease. So he documents one that had a porcupine quill up its nail bed and into its arm. It was all septic and nasty. And it prevented that tiger from then being able to hunt prey naturally. So it had to take easy pickings like people. Another one had two, <laughs> had two gunshot wounds in its, in its shoulder and it was all infected and so this tiger again couldn't like go hunt wild things it would just hunt you and me because we're kind of slow and dumb and, 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 and this is kind of how it goes another tiger he, he hunted and killed had three or four of its canine teeth missing all right? now even though these man-eating tigers were somehow injured Jim Corbett found they were much more vicious cunning and dangerous than any of the healthy animals he had ever encountered and here's his hypothesis here's his reason why They were constantly afraid. Just think about a house cat or a dog for a minute. Pretty docile. You get that thing cornered, or like our old cat... You put it in the crate because you have to go to the vet, and it becomes this like Tasmanian devil. It's like, it, how could something that weighs nine pounds be so dangerous and scratch me up so bad? So these, these man eaters were constant, like this constant vigilance. Think cat with PTSD that weighs 800 pounds and wants to kill you and is always on the alert, always in a defensive posture. Caiaphas was afraid. You see, Caiaphas was the high priest. He was in charge of the temple and the whole Jewish religious state. He stuck between trying to appease Rome and keep the people in order on the one hand while waiting for God to return and rescue the people on the other hand. He was in a sense the steward of God's people until God or his Messiah returned. But what if that rescuing God somehow is associated with or represented by this Jesus. This man who didn't follow all the rules Caiaphas held so dear. A man whose lifestyle convicted Caiaphas. A man who caused primal fear to well up in Caiaphas. And what was the root of this fear? If Jesus were really the Son of God, if He's really God's Messiah... And if his way of life and teaching is really the way that God demands, then Caiaphas would have to make significant changes in how he views the world and how he lives his life. and He possibly might even lose his position. After all, if the Messiah came, then what was the use of a high priest who takes care of a stone temple? If God was there in the flesh, then what he, Then Caiaphas feels threatened, obsolete. I think that Caiaphas represents a common reaction to Jesus. Fear-driven self-preservation. This is the person that, that Caiaphas represents is the person who's so convicted by Jesus that they hate him for it. They hate him because his life makes their life seem sinful. They hate Him because His authority threatens their so-called authority. They fear Him because of the demands He makes on their life. And I'm using the word they to be very diplomatic. But I think you and I both know we could probably switch the pronouns there to I and to we. There are areas in our lives where we just don't want Jesus to touch And when he gets too close to those sacred areas of rebellion, we lash out in anger like a cornered beast. And usually our anger and our venom is pointed outward at other people. And it's usually pointed outward at other people who are closest to us and we love the most. We feel arrested by fear. And I think it's the fear of the lordship of Jesus. I think there's a second way that these fears are played out in this passage. It's the way of Peter, who followed Jesus, but from a distance. He wasn't too sure what was happening. Jesus hadn't turned out to be the kind of Lord he was comfortable following. Back in the garden when the angry mob showed up, Peter was sure. That was the minute Jesus was going to come out guns blazing and show his true hand as Messiah. And take the throne. And that didn't happen. And I wonder what Peter realized for the first time, I might die following this man. And while Jesus is being accused by these false witnesses, there's Peter within earshot in the courtyard. Peter sits with the enemy while he himself is a credible witness to say, wait a minute, I've been with this man for three years. What are you accusing him of? Healing people? Casting out demons? Teaching the word of God? Instead, Peter plays it safe and keeps Jesus at a distance. The great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote of the difference between admirers of Jesus and followers of Jesus. He writes, Admirers respect how Jesus led his life. They gain inspiration from his teachings and his attitude. They know and they love his teachings. But Kierkegaard continues, Christ came into the world to save it, not instruct it. So what then is the difference between an admirer and a follower? A follower is or strives to be that which he admires. An admirer, however, keeps himself personally detached. Jesus is the Lord. who said, if you wish to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. He doesn't say, just try and do a few of the things that I said, or try and imitate a few of the things that I did. If you get some of it right, that's okay. And Jesus, if I'm honest, when I look at Him, I find myself fearful of what Jesus really wants from me. What He really demands. You know, when a large company gets sued, maybe, I don't know, I haven't even thought about this very well, but maybe they make a product, and it's a little defective, and it hurts somebody so they want to keep it out of the media and they go to the family and they say, hey, we're willing to settle out of court on this we'll give you a few million you guys just hush it up, we'll fix the product don't worry about it you know? they always want to settle out of court because they know if they go to court well, A, their name is dragged through the mud and B, they're probably going to lose a lot more maybe a class action lawsuit comes out something like that, right? I found that Jesus constantly wants to set me free but what I do is I try and plea bargain with him and I say, all right, I, I hear what you're saying. You really want that part of me. Here's what I'm willing to come back at you with. Let's settle out of court. Um, I will pray more oh, and I'll serve more and I'll give a little bit more. I'll, I got you on the finance thing. I'll give you I'll give a little more. Right, but just don't you know, just don't touch that one thing or those three things or those ten things. Don't Don't really go that deep. I want to keep you at a distance. See, Jesus wants to set me free from my core hang-ups. Control and lust and self-preservation. He wants to set me free, and I get afraid like a cornered animal. And I get angry and I get defensive. Because I don't like him pushing on those pressure points. And I find that if I am not intentional about asking Jesus to help me change, I end up, like Peter, following him at a distance. How about you? What hot buttons has Jesus been pushing lately? What deep issues is Jesus trying to get at, trying to actually set you free from? It, it is natural to be incredibly nervous before surgery. And in many ways, that's what Jesus is. A spiritual surgeon. And he wants to cut out the things that are killing you because he wants us to have abundant life the good news is that Jesus will not give up on you he is not afraid he's not afraid I find that Caiaphas has reacted in fear in the garden Peter reacts in fear with the sword. In the courtyard, Peter reacts in fear at keeping Jesus at a distance. But God is not afraid. He is not afraid to go through corrupt trials and be spit on and hit for you. He's not afraid to die for you. And He's not afraid to get up close and personal with the real you as you are right now. And that is incredibly good news. To me, that's what this passage is preaching. I want to leave you with that. As we enter into a time of prayers for healing, I want to invite Anne Moore forward. And as I said before, this is a, a, a space for you. Um, you can use the space to pray where you're at. Maybe wrestle with some of these things that have come up in the message. Uh, and I encourage you, if you have something that you'd like prayer for, come take advantage of this time and space.